मॉर्निंग एवरीबॉडी आई स्नेग्धा शर्मा आई एम गोइंग टू प्रेजेंट द हिंदू एडिटोरियल डेटेड टेंथ जुलाई 2021. दिस पॉडकास्ट इज फॉर दोज हु डू नॉट हैव टाइम टू रीड न्यूज़पेपर पेपर द एनालिसिस ऑफ द एडिटोरियल इज गिवन ऑन द लास्ट सेगमेंट ऑफ द पॉडकास्ट लेट्स गेट स्टार्टेड हैप्पी प्रिपरेशन in defense of india's noisy democracy in the current moment it is important to clear why comparisons with china are not only specious but also dangerous this article is written by patrick heller china's developmental pathway over the last century has been spectacular no country in history has ever grown faster and more dynamically Not only have hundreds of millions been lifted out of poverty, but social indicators have improved dramatically. India's developmental record has been much more mixed since the 1990s. The Indian economy has grown impressively, but it remains far behind China in its global competitiveness. Poverty has come down, but employment prospects for the majority remains limited. to low wage informal sector jobs that are by definition precarious maybe most startling of all improvements in basic social developments indicators have lagged so much so that as jean riaz and amartya sen have pointed out india has actually fallen behind bangladesh and pakistan the two dramatic democratic line comparing these track records some commentators including voices in the government have drawn a facile lesson india's problem is that it is just too democratic unlike china making and implementing key decisions about public investment and various reforms is impossible in the din of multiple and contradictory democratic voices what is needed are firmer and more independent forms of decision making that are insulated from this cacophony This line of thinking has at various times been embraced by sections of the left leninism and multilateral technocrats and bankers but increasingly has become the animating fantasy of right-wing le- leaders and movements ranging from elected autocrats such as Donald Trump, Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro and Narendra Modi. The strangeness of these bedfellows alone can should be cause for alarm but in the current moment it is especially important to be clear why comparisons with china are not only specious but very dangerous the claim that less democracy is good for development does not stand up to comparative theoretical and ethical scrutiny contrary to those who believe economic management cannot be left to the whims of democratic forces the comparative evidence clearly shows that democratic regimes have on balance performed uh, performed better than non democratic regimes china with a history of state building going back to two millennia and an exceptionally well organized disciplined and brutal form of authoritarianism has done especially well in transforming its economy Africa and West Asia where authoritarian governments of every stripe have dominated remain world economic laggards 
The Latin American military dictatorship of the 1960s and 1970s had a terrible economic and social record. And it was with the return of democracy and the pink wave of left populist parties that prosperity and social progress were assured in. Taiwan and South Korea are also instructive. Their economic takeoffs happened under military regimes and relied on labor repression. Their transition to democracy saw their economies move up to the next level and become much more inclusive. Democracy and development. Most pointedly though, one only has to look within India to understand how development and democracy can thrive together. By just about any measure, Kerala and Tamil Nadu have done more to improve the lives of all their citizens across castes and classes than any other states in India and it is no coincidence that both have also had the longest and most sustained popular democratic movements and intense party competition in the country. In contrast, in Gujarat, where single, par- single party Bharti Janata Party rule has been in place for nearly a quarter century, growth has been solid but accompanied by increased social exclusion and stagnation in educational achievement and poverty reduction. The comparative record leaves little doubt that on balance, democracies are better at promoting exclusive growth. The theory behind the authoritarian fantasy also does not hold up. First, the assumption that authoritarianism supports forms of decision-making that can arise above the hubbub of democratic demand-making to get things done presumes that those in command will serve the general interest rather than catering to the powerful and that, and that when they enjoy such autonomy, they actually know what to do with it. This is just hubris. On both these points, democracies are in fact more likely to meet the necessary conditions for successful decision-making. Elected representatives, no matter how venal, have to win re-election, which means answering to a, bra- to a, broad, to a broad swath of the electorate. It allows negotiations. The conflicts and noise that democracy generates may complicate things, but in the end, having to respond to a broad spectrum of interests and guarantees not only protects against catastrophic decisions, but actually allows for forms of negotiations and compromises that can bridge across interests and even balance otherwise conflicting imperatives for growth, justice, sustainability, and social inclusion. The remarkable progress for UPA governments made in building a welfare state, National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, the right to information, the right to food and other programs is a testament to how a democracy can master even the most complex policy goals. As democratic theorists have long argued, the common good cannot and should not be determined by science, profits, technocrats or autocratic fiat. What it is and how we get there can only emerge out of sustained societal deliberation. I'll look at China. India's twist with democracy was born not only of its liberation movement, but also of its affinity with what makes democracy ethically unique. It promotes equality by endowing all citizens with the same civic, political and social rights, even as it protects and nurtures individuality and differences. And this is where the China-India comparison is so problematic, indeed unconscionable. 
However, one might like to measure or evaluate China's development success. There is no way to discount the human cost of the party-made Great Famine that took some 35 million lives, a cultural revolution that made enemies out of neighbors, a one-child policy that devastated families and erased a generation, or the violent, systematic repression of the Uyghur Muslim and Tibetan minorities. These were not unfortunate excesses or the inevitable cost of development. These were and are the irredeemable instincts and predations of an authoritarian state, one which now denounces as historical nihilism, any interpretation of the past that challenged the party's official history. Conversely, while India's democracy has been quarrelsome, cumbersome and often dominated by elites, it has also opened social and political spaces for subordinate groups and has built a sense of shared identity and belonging in the world's largest and most diverse society. It has preserved individual liberties, group identities and religious and thought freedoms, all the things that confirm recognition on human beings. To even pose a question of trade-off between these freedoms and the role they have played in building a pluralistic nation and some cold utilitarian calculus of development not only does violence to the very idea of human agency and dignity but completely abstracts from the very different social and historical realities of India and China. There is a backslide. Beyond these comparative arguments for democracy, one need look no further than the object lesson the BJP government has provided to dismiss the authoritarian fantasy. The democratic backsliding has been clear. The government has not only sought to centralize, insulate and personalize decision making, but has also aggressively undermined the independence of democratic institutions and silenced and imprisoned opposition voices all in the name of nationalism and promoting development. Yet, the development track is dismal at best. While corporate business interests and the billionaire classes have flourished, the overall economy has sputtered and since COVID-19 has experienced the worst contraction of any sizable economy in the world. Demonetization and the disastrous response to the second COVID-19 wave were not just instances of utter policy incoherence fueled by the psychophancy and myopia that comes with an inwardly focused government, but exposed a degree of callousness and arrogance rarely seen in a democracy. On the social front, the pursuit of Hindutva, a prototypical variant of authoritarian ethnic nationalism, has shaken India's democratic norms and institutional foundations and weaponized a politics of polarization and demonization that threatened to unravel the social fabric of the nation. Rather than look to China, it is time to defend the noise of Indian democracy. The power on criticism that muzzles the advocate. The new Bar Council of India rules fly in the face of constitutional guarantees of free speech and freedom of profession. This article is written by Aarti Raghavan. On June 25, 2021, amendments to the Bar Council of India rules which govern the professional conduct and etiquettes of uh, advocates are notified. They're in the advocates liable for disciplinary proceedings for making disparaging statements about a court, judge, the Bar Council of India or its members. The consequences include suspension and disbarment. The amendments clarify that healthy and bona fide criticism made in good faith shall not be treated as a misconduct. 
Challenges were mounted before various high courts immediately after the amendments were notified. The Bar Council of India in response has kept the rules in abeyance. Pending a review by a committee comprising senior advocates, members of Bar Association and the Bar Council of India. The amendments also require the Chief Justice of India's approval before coming into effect which has not yet been obtained. The intent is clear. The intent behind these amendments is betrayed by events that preceded their introduction. On May 25, 2022, 22 senior advocates addressed an open letter urging the Supreme Court of India to intervene in the migrant crisis. A retired judge of the Supreme Court also wrote an article on May 28th condemning the courts in action in this regard. In response, the Bar Council of India issued a press release. On May 13, characterizing the criticism as a sustained and synchronized attack on Supreme Court by disgruntled members of the bar and some unhappy, disappointed former judges. This was followed by an attack on a legal news portal, Live, Live Law, for an article that was critical of the Bar Council of India chairman, Manan Kumar Mishra. The article noted how the chairman accused certain advocates of politicizing the bar while himself openly professing his allegiance to the Bharatiya Janta Party. In 2014, as chairman of the Bar Council of India, he pledged his support for the party in Narendra Modi, holding himself out as a representative of India's nearly 1.7 million advocates. In 2016, he addressed a founding uh, missive to Prime Minister Modi, on the Bar Council of India letterhead, describing him as the most efficient and able leader of the world. The article recounted how the chairman championed a to movement. Following the sexual harassment complaint against former Chief Justice of India, Ranjan Gogoi, and also denounced an anti-citizenship act protesters as illiterate, ignorant mass. In each of these actions, Mr. Mishra claimed to speak on behalf of the Indian Bar and the articles deprecated this improper use of public office. There was swift retaliation to the live law article. A Bar Council of India resolution condemned the author for scandal mongering and vilification and resolved to take actions against the author and live law. The resolution extolled without specifics the laudable acts done and being done by the Bar Council of India chairman for promotion of a strong, vibrant and independent bar and judiciary. A chance for a review. It was in this backdrop that on June 3, 2020, while India was in throes of an unprecedented novel coronavirus pandemic and access to justice was severely impaired owing to the limited functioning of courts, the Bar Council of India convened a meeting and proposed amendments to the rules for professional conduct. Contemporaneously, the Supreme Court made, it views, made its views on the censure of the judiciary clear, at a time where only matters of exceptional urgency were being entered, entertained during the pandemic. The court carved out an inordinate amount of time to charge individual individuals including advocate Prashant Bhushan with criminal contempt for critical remarks about the Supreme Court. Today, the court under the Chief Justice of India and V. Ramana along with the committee reviewing the new rules have an opportunity prevent a further assault on free speech by rejecting the amendments. Historically, our country's speech laws have served to fortify persons and institutions of power where silencing those assailing their actions. The laws such as sedition and criminal contempt perpetuate the fiction 
foundation that the authority of these institutions rests on the fragile foundation of public faith and that dissent would impair the ability of powerful institutions such as courts and government bodies to carry out their duties this notion is a bourgeois man that has been used to silence critics and is a colonial and feudal relic state institutions derive their authority from the power vested in them by the law and nothing else criticism no matter how trenchant is essential to hold these institutions accountable and strengthen them a chilling effect the new bar council of india rules fly in the face of the basic constitutional guarantees of free speech and the freedom of profession the events preceding the introduction of the amendments demonstrate how limited the scope for healthy criticism under the new rules would be further even if the disciplinary proceedings under the new rules should they come into effect do not result in serious consequences such as this barment the pain of the process and the possible consequences to the career of advocates would have a chilling effect the bar council of india's statement suspending the amendments pending reviews by the committee notes that no prudent and real advocate would oppose the new rules and that some people are in the habit to object to each and every reformative step but the bar council of india is not going to succumb to any such undue pressure hopefully the bar council of india statement is not a chronicle of charade foretold and the amendments will be reviewed objectively professional conduct and etiquette is an enigmatic phrase for the indian bar as it is hard to fathom what the spiritual standards is recently the solicitor general tushar mehta was questioned in court about the government's defaults on its oxygen supply commitments during the second wave of the pandemic in response he said that we have to act as a responsible individuals and not as unhappy girlfriends and added let's try and not be a cry baby mr mehta's response was not only unprofessional but was also unsuitable for the issue of citizens being starved of oxygen but his words are perhaps a fitting response to the bar council of india and other institutions that are rankled by criticism from citizens who have very right to raise their voices against authority in a democracy ardi raghavan is an advocate practicing at the bombay high court Unded section. The invalid section 66A is often invoked out of ignorance but serves as a tool of harassment. It is quite disconcerting that the Supreme Court has been informed for the second time in two years that section 66A of the IT Act, which was struck down by unconstitutional six years ago, is still being invoked by the police and in some trial courts. One can see why the court deemed it as a shocking state of affairs when a petition by the people's union for civil liberties came up for hearing section 66a made messages deemed by the police to be offensive or menacing to anyone or that they caused annoyance a criminal offense if these were sent through a computer or computer resource it is uh, it prescribed a prison term for up to 3 years on conviction in its landmark judgment of shreya singhal 2015 the court ruled that the provision was vague and violated violated the freedom of free speech it was so broadly defined that it took into its sweep protected speech also and therefore upset the balance between the exercise of free speech right and the imposition of the reasonable restrictions on it 
In January 2019-2, the court's attention was drawn to the same problem of the invalidated provision being used by the police to register cases based on complaints. Not much seems to have changed since then, and it is quite surprising that the police headquarters and prosecutors in the various states had not disseminated the effect of the court ruling among officers manning police stations. There were also instances of courts framing charges under Section 66A even after lawyers had cited the 2015 judgment. The PUCL has uh, said as many as 745 cases are still pending in district courts in 11 states. It is not difficult to surmise that police officers who receive complaints and register them as FIR may not be aware of the judgment, though one cannot rule out instances of section being invoked deliberately as a tool of harassment. Ignorance of the law is no excuse for the citizens and it must equally be no excuse for police officers who include invalidated sections in the FIRs. Recently, police in Uttar Pradesh booked a journalist for defamation under Section 500 of the IPC, even though the Supreme Court has ruled that defamation can be pursued only by way of private complaints and there can be no FIR. The current hearing may result in directions to states and the police as well as the court registries for appropriate advisories to both station house officers and magistrates, magistrates but it is not necessary for those concerned to wait for such orders. Police chiefs and the directorates of prosecution must proactively begin a process of conveying to the lower courts and investigators all important judgment and their effect on the practices relating to investigation, prosecution and the framing of charges from time to time.